Over recent years, share markets have been on a turbulent journey, with valuations soaring and then returning to earth. This week, we dig into the data to answer the important question, are we there yet? Hosted by Stefan Clark, Chief Client Officer and Andrew Curtang, Portfolio Manager, this week's Monday call is a great opportunity to gain valuable insights on markets and investing. We'll explore a range of topics, including whether shares are now cheap by historical standards, the long-term returns of different asset classes, how company earnings have changed over time, and how long bear markets typically last. We'll also be comparing markets in the US, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and China, and examining the long-term returns that investors in these markets have seen. Supporting slides for this call can be found at nzfunds.co.nz forward slash insights. This is the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. All right, well, without further ado, Andrew, welcome. It's great to have you here. Let's kick off with what do we mean by are we there yet? What, what, what are you thinking when you think about that? Thank you, Stefan, and good morning, everyone. Um, well, in this... The simple answer to that question is people generally want to know, is the bear market finished yet? So are we at a level where we can start a new period of uh, compounding returns, um, such as what we often see in the share market, where it makes nice steady returns in that sort of 7 to 8% level over a sustained period of time? Now, as as we know, share markets are, are broken by periods of, um, of negative returns, which is what we call the bear market. Now, the question that we're, we're trying to answer is now that we are 15 months into this period of, of sort of downward sloping share market returns, are we at a point where the market may find a bottom and may start to compound in positive returns again? Okay. And so let's, you know, first question is why do prices even change? What is it that it's happening? And, and why is it that, you know, from 15 months ago, things were looking rosy and the world seemed to be going up, 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 and now things aren't. What is it, what is it that causes, you know, at, at, a, at a fundamental level, prices to start moving? Well, let's, let's remember the share market is, um, is actually investing in real assets being companies. Um, any, any index such as the uh, NZX50 is comprised of 50 companies. All these companies are their own businesses which are earning revenues and profits. And they, the index movement in, um, or the, the index price that moves is really the, the, the movement and the individual stock prices of all those companies that comprise that index. Now, what, what moves a company's stock price? Well, it's um, uh, a whole host of reasons, but uh, some of the main ones are how is that company performing? Is its earnings increasing or decreasing? Uh, what are the future-looking prospects of the company looking like? Is it is it expected to accelerate its level of earnings increase in the future, or maybe to slow down the level of its earnings growth? Um, also, um, more macroeconomic factors such as what is happening with interest rates. When interest rates are increasing, it tends to be negative for the share price of companies. Um, we could be looking at other external factors such as is the global economy looking at more risk? Are we expecting a recession to come forward? Is there a war going on, such as like we've had with the Ukraine war? How does that impact companies? So it's really a whole a whole host of reasons. Now, um, you know, we sort of look at what's going on at the moment. Why has the stock market sort of been in a, a slightly downward sloping trajectory over the last 15 months? Well, that's been a couple of reasons, but right at the top of the list is increasing interest rates and um, a, a reduction of liquidity in the global monetary system, which has been come on due to the high inflation levels. And this has caused 
central banks to try to control that inflation by increasing interest rates and um, really trying to slow down the the, uh, the speed or the, or the amount of money that's flowing through the system. So in the same way that your housing prices tend to fall when mortgage rates go up, um, company share prices tend to fall when interest rates increase quickly over a, over a short period of time. Righto. And so obviously there's a, a large number of factors that get taken into account by, by investors. People talk about investors being forward-looking and trying to understand information um, into the future and, and bring that into the price. Well, how, do, how do you think about that? Because obviously there's today's information that we know and then there's expectations. As, as a portfolio manager, how do you think about, well, the price is um, what it is, and I, can, I know that now, but obviously I have to take a view on where it's going. Yeah, so at, at its simplest fundamentally, um, a company's valuation is the discounted cash flow of its future expected earnings, or um, we call this a, a DCF in, in the finance world, which is, is essentially where you model forward exactly how much money a company is going to generate in each year, and then you discount that back based on the average cost of capital for the company. But let's let's say we're looking at a company's earnings over the next 20 years. Well, really, we are forward-looking then because we're wanting to know what this company is going to earn next year, the year after, and potentially what the company is going to earn in 10 and 20 years' time. Now, obviously, the longer you forecast that out, the more unpredictable um, it becomes. But if you look at the next couple of years, um, we do have a, a little bit of an idea of what might be happening. We know there might be a heightened chance of a recession happening next year, and therefore in a recession, it tends, you tend to see things such as property values go down, you tend to see um, consumer spending decrease, um, you tend to see building acti activity decrease. So you might say, if we think there's a heightened chance of a recession in the next 12 to 24 months, then we think the valuations of company exposed to the building sector and consumer spending will go down. On the flip side, you might, you might take a... Um, have that same sort of recession view, but then say, look, we'd rather own companies that are exposed to um, utility-type sectors or infrastructure sectors, which tend to hold up better in those sectors. So so in answer to your question, Stefan, that's really what we're thinking about as investors when you say, look, we're forward-looking. We're trying to understand what the world is going to look like in the next couple of years um, and what that company's prospects are based on that view. Um, and also, just to bring it back to the longer term, we're also still trying to think 10 to 20 years out. We don't completely base our investment decisions just on what might happen next year because in the end, we, aren't, we want to own great companies that have a proven record of compounding growth or growing earnings over 10 and 20-year timeframes. And just because a company may see some pressure one year out, it doesn't mean it's a bad company. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad investment if it's going to continue to grow really well over the next 10 and 20 years. Fantastic. So if, if we think then um, about, uh, and we're going to talk about re uh, returns and earnings in a little more detail as we sort of launch into some of the, the data and, and time, but you, you mentioned the long term. So um, we, I'm aware that there's a book by a, a professor of um, Morton School called um, Jeremy Siegel, who wrote Stocks for the Long Run. It's sort of a, um, it's a famous book within the finance industry. And he, in that book, does a, a deep study into long term Returns of different asset classes, and that, um, and and particularly what what he concludes through it is that the the real return of of shares is it is roughly you know seven percent. So that's after inflation. Before inflation, it's something like ten percent. Of bonds, it's three point five percent, and of term deposits or treasury bills, as they call them in, in, in the states, it's two point five percent. 
And um, and, and and as part of that study, he uh, he he effectively shows that uh, the purchasing power of shares when you're invested in shares doubles every ten years. But you need you need to hold on. So, you know, how does I know that you think about you know his work and and when you're investing and and you explore what um, you explore the returns profile of the, you know the long backwards looking data that he's looked at. How how, do, how does that feed into when you're looking forward and and choosing businesses to invest in or, or constructing a portfolio for clients? Um, yeah, it's it's great that you mentioned um, Jeremy Siegel and the analysis he's done because it's a it's a great book to remind you of. Um, why the share market or stocks is such a fantastic investment class. So uh, Siegel's looked at over 200 years of data going right the way back to the early, early 1800s of what the share market has done and, and other asset classes and what their returns have been over that period. And as Stefan mentioned, um, the real return in shares is about 7%. Um, so if you add inflation to that, you're earning somewhere between 8 to 10% um, a year over over a 200-year year period. And, and if you break it down into smaller 30-year or 25-year segments, you tend to get similar similar returns as well. Um, now, what what that um, what we take from that as long-term investors is that our job is to, in general, keep our investors or our clients invested in the share market to earn these long-term returns. Um, if you if you stay in the share market over a 20 to 30-year period, history will tell you you will earn these returns, and that's so that 7, 8, 9, 10% return from the share market. There's no other asset class you can invest in which earns those returns. The closest um, that comes to is property, which um, Stefan or uh, no, I might touch on in a bit, but that that is the, that is the, um, the main premise of what we're trying to do. So, Yes, we'll be looking at times about what might be happening this year and what might be happening next year. And if we're particularly concerned about the valuation of stocks, we might be reducing our exposure a, a little bit. But we're not trying to flip into the market, flip back out of the market, trying to invest for the next three months or the next six months because um, we need to stay still invested to make sure we earn those sort of great um, sort of 7 to 9% long-term returns. At one point, I, I believe, in the book, he... he... Um, identifies that there's never been a 20-year period for stocks where the real returns are negative. So after inflation, um, you're still getting a positive return, even uh, so long as you hold them. That's on, on an annualized basis, so long as you hold them for 20 years, which uh, sounds like a very long period of time, but most of the periods don't don't require that. And that that that's looking back, I think, what was it, 220 years? And so it goes through the Great Depression, the Second World War, um, periods of high inflation, dot-com bust, the GFC, all of those. And, uh, and he concludes in that, that equity returns, as long as you stay the course, uh, have shown astonishing st stability. And, and that even includes, you mentioned the Great Depression, where the, um, it was the greatest share market fall um, in the United States, and the market fell by over 80%. But even if you had been unlucky enough to invest just before that 80% correction in the share market, if you held for 15 to 20 years, you were still back at positive returns. And if you held for another 15 to 20 years, um, you were back at a great level of compounding returns. Yeah, which is incredible, really, when you think about it. And then uh, maybe we do just jump into you know the other asset classes briefly, but property, for example, yeah, in his book, he talks to the fact that Property also produces similar returns, but it has a lot of unique profiles to it. It's hard to liquidate um, if you want to exit, you know, and transact on it. There's a lot of management involved in it, and um, and there's other other idiosyncratic elements to 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 property. 
Um, but, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but my understanding is, is that, you know, property and, and shares uh, or stocks, as he calls them, produce pretty much similar returns if you hold them for similar periods. Over the last 40 to 50 years, that's that's been the case. Um, however, the data for property returns before then gets a little bit more tricky because obviously if you own property, you need to be accounting for the rent you're earning each year. So the data gets... So if you look in the early half of the 1900s, it gets a little bit trickier. Um, and also the thing I point out with property over the last 40 years, it's been a very large beneficiary of lowering lower interest rates. Interest rates peaked in the 1980s, um, or the, the last peak we had, and there's sort of been um, decreasing in general since then, which has helped drive higher property returns that you would probably normally expect in a period of flat interest rates. Okay, so let's, let's launch into the slides. Um, if... Uh, uh, if we move through, um, there's a couple here. There's obviously a lot of slides in the slide deck, but there's a couple that are really quite powerful. Would you mind um, talking first off about the S&P 500 five-year annualized return? A mouthful, but um, it's quite an important um, a piece of information. Um, yeah, and just to provide context, we, we often in these calls talk about the United States market and the S&P 500. However, we're based in, in New Zealand, so you might ask why, why do we focus so much on the United States market? Um, well, one, United States is over 50% of the listed market capitalization of the share market globally. Um, this has floated from sort of levels of sort of down to 30% at some points up to about 60% plus at some points. So it is a huge component of the global market. Um, and two, at New Zealand Funds, we invest in, um, in, in most developed markets around the world. We, we, um, we invest in New Zealand and Australia as core allocations to our investments, but the United States is also a core allocation. Uh, we invest in Europe, we invest in, in Asia, so we really take a global approach and diversify around many share markets rather than concentrating risk in one share market. And we might talk a little bit further on that in a second. So, so yes, the five-year five returns, this is a chart that... Uh, we quite like to look at these, this annualised level of five-year returns because it provides a smoothing element of what you expect if you stay invested for the medium to long term in the share market. If you look at one-year returns, you know, the market could be up or down 20% in, in a given year, but um, over the five-year period, you will see that you tend to earn positive returns if you hold the shares for five years. So I guess there's a couple of key messages I want here. Um, the first is that if you look at where the five-year return turns negative, there's only been a few periods in history going back over the last 100 years where we've seen that happen. Um, the second thing I'd like to say is that we've also had periods of outstanding returns in the sort of 10 to 20% level uh, for a sustained period of time. In particular, one of the greatest periods for share market returns in the United States was the period of the 1980s through to 2000, uh, where we were earning returns in the 10 to 20% level for almost two decades. Um, but there was a period um, also that we've been through recently from 2009, 2010 through 2020. We were in a great period of sort of 10 to 15% annualised returns for, uh, for, for about a decade. And that coincides with the interest rate decline you were talking about? Absolutely. So it was both um, cheap valuations. Um, the valuation of the market got very cheap post the financial crisis. Um, and we also had a period where... Uh, the monetary policy and it was very accommodative and interest rates were coming lower, uh, which drove a fantastic period of both economic growth in the United States, earnings growth of companies and, um, and great share market returns. Fantastic. And how does that translate? We've also got a chart of the 10-year annualised return, which is very similar, but, um, but different too. Would you, would you compare the two? 
Yeah, so so ten year. What we're doing on the ten year is we're we're doing the average annual return over the last ten years. So it's a longer time frame than the five year period. Um, what you'll notice here that there's only been three periods in the last hundred years where we've had negative returns, which was around the Great Depression in the 1930s. Uh, we're slightly dipped negative in the 1970s, where we had the in inflation. Um, situation in the United States, um, also other factors such as the Vietnam War and a number of external factors going on, um, and then the financial crisis. Uh, we had a we had a period of um, only only a small period of ten, um, negative ten year returns around two thousand eight and two thousand nine, um, but from the longer from the upside level, uh, we tend to peak around fifteen percent annualized returns over the last ten years, which was seen three key periods where that's been achieved, which was the nineteen fifties. Um, uh, late 1990s, um, and then also we've almost just touched on it in the last um, couple of years where we had this great 10-year period since 2010. So in each of those periods where there was negative returns experienced, it subsequently it obviously rose again, and then um, in, in each case it, it drove higher and higher. Is that what, what we can take from that data? Yeah, it's, um, it's these the, the shares are a cyclical market, Economy is cyclical. Um, nothing is extrapolated into future. Um, the periods where you have these negative returns, I know the sentiment tends to get quite negative in the market, and people kind of get downbeat and say, "Look, we've we've had a period of five years of returns that haven't been very high or have been slightly negative." But if you look at this chart throughout history, and for those that um, are listening to the call, I encourage you to download the slides and have a look. You will see that this never lasts forever, and and then sometimes the returns um, bounce back very fast, such as they did in 2010. Um, and then all of a sudden you're in a period of fantastic returns and getting 10% per year. All right, the next the next one is this concept of enterprise value, so to EBITDA multiple. So this is still in the American market. We're talking about the S&P 500. And we're going to be using this term um, a little bit as we move across to other markets as well. Uh, tell me, what is enterprise value to EBITDA multiple? What, what is, I mean, it's mouthful. What, is it, what does it mean and what are you trying to show with this chart? Um, enterprise value is um, another way of looking at the total value of a company. So the one that most non-finance professional people would be used to is the market capitalization, which people talk about. We actually look at a slightly different term called the enterprise value. Now, all the enterprise value is, is you take the market cap of a company and you add back its debt that it has. So you, what you're really looking at is you're looking at the total value of the company, including the value that it has raised from, from debt holders. Um, now, what this does is it sort of normalizes for how uh, leveraged companies are. Um, and if I, I guess if I give an example, you might have a company which has a market capitalization of $1, $1 billion and it has $200 million of loans from the bank. We would be looking at the total value at $1.2 billion rather than $1 billion. Now, we compare this to um, a term called EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. Now, um, rather than go through all those points, I think just just think of EBITDA as being a slightly um, more stable version of earnings, which is really focusing on exactly what is the company generating from its from its assets or its operations. You know, a company selling a product and it's got a cost to produce that product. That's really what we're looking at, and and it also includes all the um, kind of call it the overhead costs of of paying the people in the office and its general sort of uh, general administration costs, but it excludes your financing cost and the depreciation on your assets. Now, um, now this multiple um, is a very key multiple that is tracked by um, all investors, uh, both both on individual company basis and when you look at 
uh, the valuations of entire indices. Uh, the first chart we've got up here is looking at the S&P 500, which is the 500 largest listed companies in the United States. And we're tracking this multiples um, all the way back to 1992. Um, as you can see, um, for those that are looking at the chart, the average multiple has been 11.6 times over this last 30-year period. At the moment, we're sitting at about 13 times. So we're sitting slightly above that, that average valuation level, um, but, but we're in the range which is sort of considered more normal. Um, what, does, what does this really mean? Um, it means from this level, all else equal, we should be at a level that can earn that sort of 7% real returns or the 9% nominal type returns you expect from the share market. Um, it also is telling us that uh, we've come back to a more reasonable level because only a year or two ago we were trading at sort of the upper 18, 19 um, times multiple, which is a level which was very expensive um, and, and a level that you sort of were, would have been a little bit nervous about the prospects for the next returns in the next couple of years. Um, since then, we've had the share market come back by over 20%. Uh, the underlying earnings of the companies have continued to grow. That's why that, that ratio of the enterprise value to EBITDA has come back to 13 times. So we're at the level where we want to be invested in. Um, we'd be very nervous to be saying we're going to have very high cash levels when you've got valuations that are sitting around about the long-term averages. Righto. And on, on the chart, you've got these lines drawn um, and first standard deviation on either side. That's telling you, how, how do you think about the standard deviations with earnings? Um, so this is the standard deviation on on the multiple. Um, and what it's saying is, are we within one or one or um, standard deviation above or below the historical level, and at 13 times we're actually below the one standard deviation level. So, um, you know, it's, it's it's again saying we're not really at a level which is unusually expensive. Um, you know, if we're heading above that standard deviation level, we'd be a little bit more cautious and maybe looking to um, have a little bit more protection in the portfolios in case um, in case those valuations came back to the average level. Fantastic. And so I guess what we can conclude from this is to the extent of the 500 largest companies in the States, which obviously makes up a big part of the global economy, um, valuations are on using this multiple are close to fair value compared with historical averages. That's right. On the next chart, we have another similar um, multiple, but it is, it's used in a different way. Could you, this is the price to earnings multiple. Um, again, on the S&P 500, would well, talk us through that and how that's faring compared with historical averages. Yeah, so the price to earnings multiple or the, or the PE multiple, as it's known for short, is probably the uh, most talked about multiple you hear when you look at the share market. Um, it is simply the market capitalization of a company divided by its earnings, um, or, in, or in this instance, the PE stands for the share price divided by the earnings per share. You get to the same result. Um, the difference between this and the enterprise value EBITDA multiple is that it includes um, the earnings number includes the um, interest cost on the debt that companies that the company's raised as well as the depreciation. It tends to be a slightly more variable number. It jumps around a little bit more, um, but also still a very relevant metric for looking at the valuations of companies. So the chart we have up here uh, tracks this price to earnings multiple right back to 1992. Um, it's showing that we're currently sitting around about bang on that 30-year average um, of around about 19 times. Um, so again, it's reinforcing the view that we've come back to a more normal level of, um, of, of valuation for the market. Uh, we've also included um, what the market is expecting this multiple to move to over the next two years. 
um, which is dropping from 19 times to 18 times next year and then to 16 times the year after. Now, now the reason this multiple is, is dropping is because the market is expecting the earnings of the company to grow. So if the earnings company uh, earnings of the company grows, the multiple gets cheaper. On the next chart, we have earnings per share through time back to 1954. And it's, it is a log chart, but it keeps grinding up. Could you mind, in spite of obviously a number of events happening through that time, take us through what we're seeing here? Yeah, so this is a chart we really like like to look at. So, um, yeah, as I as I said, company valuation really depends on the future expected earnings of the of the businesses you're valuing. Um, if you go back through years and years of data, you can see that earnings of companies tend to have periods of where they're growing faster than their normal rate, and then periods where they either fall in or or growing at a slower level. And so, what we've done in this chart is tracked this earnings level right the way back to 1950. Um, and it, I think it shows a really good, um, it shows pictorially very well when these companies over earn and when they under earn. Now, what tends to happen is companies don't go through periods of earning higher than normal earnings forever. Um, the economy might change and the economy might go into a recession and the earnings suffer for a period. Um, I just want to highlight a, a couple of periods here. Um, if, you, if you look at the periods that are just after 2000 through to 2007 was probably the the best period of earnings growth, which was heading into the uh, just before the financial crisis, but we had um, lower interest rates. The U.S. economy started growing at a very fast rate. Um, companies have been financed very well, so able to expand and grow earnings, and so we had a great period of earnings growth there, which then was followed by the financial crisis, which is a period of lower or negative earnings growth for a couple of years. Um, but really, since since then, we've been growing around about the trend level except for the period of 2021 um, and early 2022, uh, where we had a great period of earnings expansion, uh, which is which is completely related or mostly related to the COVID-19 response. Um, so what really happened there, as we've talked about on, our, on some of our previous calls, is you had um, a lowering of interest rates and easing of monetary policy, which allowed companies to um, fund themselves with cheap, cheap debt and expand at the same time um, companies were able to push up um, prices of their products as you know, as everyone had access to cheap debt, including you know, myself and Stefan and, and people at home. We were able to remortgage houses and spend money, so we were demanding products. Um, this allowed companies to sell a lot of products at high prices while they didn't really have the cost base of their companies going up for a start. So if your revenue is going up but your costs aren't changing, you're going to grow your earnings, and that's really what happened um, in 2021. Uh, we're now starting to see a little bit of a reversal of that. So um, what we're conscious of um, as investors at NZ Funds is that we've had a great period of earnings. However, it's looking like we may have a period of slightly lower than not expected earnings over the next year or two. And so we're just being conscious of that when we look at our valuation of the market. So if the earnings growth slows down and comes back a little bit, that might be reason for people just to be a little bit more cautious when they're looking at the valuation multiples of these um, of, of any market, um, but in particular, the United States. At the same time, if you look from 1954 up to now, it's gone, you know, earnings per share has grown from roughly five cents, I take it, all the way up to or $5 up to $220, $23, which over, you know, just goes to show the the, the incredible process of uh, capitalism and the American economy just grinding higher and higher, which is um, 
which I, I, underpins the valuations within share markets. So that's a really good point, Stefan. And we again coming back to invest in real companies that have great growth, and and the indices um, around the world are comprised of the largest and most successful companies in any economy. They tend to grow their earnings faster than the global domestic product growth of any company or the GDP growth. Um, and that's why you get these great compounded returns over over long time horizons. And the next chart talks is, is compares the S and P five hundred, so the American economy and uh, or listed economy, to the world. How how is is America an outlier here, or what what are we seeing? Yeah, this is a chart we like to look at when we're thinking about our, our global allocation between respective markets. So at, at NZ Funds, as I said, we invest in all all global markets, but we tend to um, and we tend to focus on the key developed economies such as US, United States, um, Australia, New Zealand and Europe um, and also some into, into Asia. Um, so when we're looking at how company, uh, how different markets have been performing each other, we take the index price of a key index and in this one it's the S&P 500 and we compare it to the MISCI Global World Index price. Now what, what the chart we're showing here is that over the last 10 years has been a fantastic period for United States companies. Uh, the S&P 500 has outperformed um, almost by about 50% over a um, over a 10-year period, although we're seeing some signs now that that's starting to reverse a bit, and we have seen, you know, in general, slightly um, larger stock price declines in the United States than, than the rest of the world. But if we step back, why has the US performed so well over the last 10 years? Well, one reason is it has been a fantastic period for economic growth in the US. US has grown at a very strong rate. A second one is US has got some amazing technology companies, uh, such as the names we're all familiar with, like Apple, um, Amazon, Microsoft, um, Google, Facebook, um, even Tesla more recently, which have been performing very successfully. Earnings have been growing at very high levels. They've been driving the S&P 500 index price higher and doing that at a faster rate than the rest of the world. But it's not just the US that's been grinding higher. Um, if we move forward, you'll see the NZX 50. And um, this is an impressive looking chart from 2001 through to 2023. And um, it keeps going up. Can you take us through what we're seeing here and 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 what an incredible looking curve it is. Yeah, so if you'd um, bought New Zealand stocks in 2001 um, by, the S by the NZX50 and held them through to today, you would have made approximately six times your money in a period of 20 years. Um, if you'd timed it even better and bought the stocks in 2009, um, just at the bottom of the financial crisis, now that's easier said than done to pick the exact bottom, but if you'd managed to do that, you almost would have made a gain about a six times return in only a period of 11, 12 years. So this has been a fantastic decade for performance of New Zealand companies. Um, what has been driving that? Well, one, our economy in general has been performing quite well over this period. Um, we've had a period where unemployment levels have, have moved lower. We've had a period where... Um, growth, your know, overall economic growth has been good. The country has had population growth, people moving in, property growth has been going very well. Strong milk prices. Strong milk prices. The dairy sectors in general has gone quite well. Um, but also we've had some great companies. Uh, we've had a number of businesses that have grown to very large $10 billion market caps. Uh, two of the names that spring to mind that have done very well over the last 10 years is uh, Fisher & Paykel Healthcare, um, and A2 Milk, um, and those you know those two companies alone are actually responsible for a great um, a great amount of the performance of the NZX50. But outside of that, we've also got some great stable business, such as the businesses in our utility sectors, you know, the Mercury's and the Meridians, 
um, companies like Auckland Airport, which have been expanding and growing at, at good compounding levels over the last 10 years as well. Righto. And so that has translated to annualised earnings. If we can compare, if we compare the annualised earnings to the US, um, how, how is that done on a five-year basis? Yeah, so we've been, actually this chart here is, is focusing on a smaller period than we saw for the US. We're just looking from 2006 through to 2022. But you can see um, very clearly there that from 2013 through to 2021, uh, you're expected to make about a 15% annualised return for holding New Zealand shares. And you had that for a sustained period of about eight years. Um, so what's that is made in about 13 years worth of returns in that level, which is um, which is fantastic. Um, even if you'd held um, New Zealand shares throughout the financial crisis period, the worst your five-year return would have got to was negative 4% annualised over five years. Um, that was the worst it got to. If you'd held it through by the time you got to 2013, you're annualising back at 15% uh, returns. So again, I guess we're trying to give this message of I know I know you, when it's in these bear markets, things look re very negative, but the data shows that if you can hold your shares throughout these periods, it tends to be sort of five years or 10 years down the track, you're right, right back on these kind of 10% type annualised returns. Right. And so that, that's, I mean, that's telling you that uh, once you come out of it, there's a, suddenly an uptick in activity after, the, after it. And then that, you know, looking at this chart here, you can see in 2012, um, the, the five-year annualised returns suddenly move up between 12, 13 and 14, back up to 15%. That, what, that's right. And, and, and even, if, even if you look now, we've had a period, um, almost a two years where the NZX50 has not performed that well. Um, the NZX50 peaked in about early 2020, early to mid-2021. But even now, the five-year annualised return is still 7.3%. And that's after we've been through a period of, um, of negative returns in the last 18 months. On the next chart, you can see the enterprise value, which we talked a little bit about, to EBITDA multiple. How does this compare with the US? And it does look like quite a different chart. Yeah, so our, our enterprise value to EBITDA multiple is a little bit more expensive than the United States. Um, we're at 15.7 times, uh, well, certainly rel relative to its 10-year average. Um, sorry, its 20-year average. Um, so we're trading at about 16 times. The average is about 11 times for New Zealand stocks over the last 20 years. So there is a five times premium. Um, that makes us you know, a little bit more cautious. On the other hand, we're still, we're understanding why these numbers are a little bit higher. And, and a lot of the reason for that is that New Zealand has quite defensive and stable type companies, which investors tend to want to pay a premium valuation for when you're a little bit concerned about the outlook. So you know, what are some of the risks we're facing at the moment? Higher interest rates, inflation still running a little, uh, a little bit high, even though it's starting to come back. Um, we're looking at potentials for recessions coming over the next 12 months. Property prices are starting to fall in New Zealand. Building activity is starting to slow down. So we're not really wanting to own what we call sort of cyclical companies that are a little bit more risky and exposed to this. We want to own nice defensive companies. What does New Zealand have a lot of? Great defensive companies. Um, again, I mentioned Meridian, Mercury, Contact Energy. Um, you, these are the Gentile businesses that produce and sell energy. We have companies like Chorus and Spark and Auckland Airport, which are core infrastructure type businesses for New Zealand. Uh, people will not start, will not stop spending on these products or, or the services that these companies provide just because we're going through a small recession. And so that is part of the reason that 
New Zealand um, NZX is holding up a little bit better at the moment with slightly higher valuations because of the type of these businesses. And their ability to respond to the current market environment. Yes, that's that's right. And and we have seen some of our, you know, our, our pre, the businesses have been very successful over the last decade come back a little bit. Um, A2 Milk and Fish and Pike Healthcare over the last sort of 18 or 24 months have been underperformers, but we're we're offsetting that with the, with relatively strong performance from these other businesses I mentioned. And they can, you know, in an inflationary environment, for example, they can pass on costs more easily than, say, a, um, a Tesla can or a Amazon. Um, people don't want to turn the power off, for example. That's exactly right. Great. And so just rounding out the NZX, um, price to earnings multiple uh, looks also quite different from the States. Take us through that. Yeah, again, um, slightly more expensive than the United States. Um, I think similar reasons due to the composition of the companies. However, we're seeing on a price to earnings multiple, we're, we're only just above the average level in New Zealand, so that's starting to look a lot more reasonable. Um, it could come back a, a, a little bit more, um, but what what I sort of expect here is that we're going to continue to achieve earnings growth as a whole in the NZX50, um, and over the next sort of 12 to 18 months, we'll see that come back towards that, that average level and... What does that mean? We're at the average valuation. I think New Zealand as a whole, even though we may have some challenges over the next 12 months with the high interest rates and housing prices, I think we're still well positioned from an economic sense. Um, and I don't see a reason why the NZX50 cannot continue to achieve um, strong compounding returns over the next um, 10 and 20 years. And so if we can compare New Zealand to the rest of the world, um, we did the same with the States. How, how, how have we gone over the last, since, you know, last 20 odd years? Yeah, similar to the States, we've really um, outperformed in general uh, versus the rest of the world. Um, but really, the difference in New Zealand, we can actually say we've been doing that since 2000. Um, you know, since um, since the year 2000, we've, we've basically continued ground um, outperformance against the rest of the world. Um, and I think that's a reflection, again, of a company that it, a country that has been growing well and has actually achieved um, or produced some, a number of exciting businesses which have managed to achieve great earnings growth over that period. Very good. Okay, so if we move forward, we move on to the chi charts on, for China and one of New Zealand's, if not the largest trading partner, it's the second largest trading partner, isn't it? Um, how how has China gone over the period? Take us through its stock exchange and um, listed companies. Well, the first thing I'd say about China is it's volatile. It's a, it's a much more volatile market than we see in New Zealand and um, and the United States and Europe, and and I guess there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one, it's it is still a developing nation, um, and for much of this period of the charts we're showing back to 2000, it was a was certainly an early stage developing nation. Um, that means it comes with higher risks. That means the companies themselves may be less established, and you may get more companies that end up not performing well and get removed from indices. But you also get some companies which grow incredibly fast, such as a company like Alibaba and achieve great growth. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd comment is um, China, throughout a lot of its um, last 20 years, has still been quite exposed to um, the commodity market and what's been going on with um, overall economic growth and trade partners, and it's tend to cause a little bit more boom-bust performance in its, in its share market. Um, but the final thing I'd say is that um, what what really um, surprises me when it, every time I look at this chart is currently when you look at China, it really its share price is no better than where it, where it was back in uh, 2007, 2008. So the share market in China had a peak um, just before the financial crisis, and that was driven by a fantastic period of growth for China. 
and also um you know they benefited a lot from sort of high commodity prices um and a lot of the products they were producing were in high demand globally since then we all know china's continued a great pathway you just look at that business and its influence in the outside uh, look at that company and um, country and look at its influence on the world and its rising technology sector and the sophistication and everything about the country as a whole has continued to prove yet the chinese company share market has not improved so much so what does that mean um in our opinion we think the the, the country um or the share market is um does have the potential for good uh, strong future returns. It is looking cheaper. Um, we do think the prospects of earnings growth for many of the companies there is is strong. And so for us, it's an interesting place to to be looking at now. Um, while we're a little bit more worried about markets such as the United States, maybe we can move some more money to China and benefit from potentially a good period of returns in that market. Well, since 2000 and I guess seven 2008, they've probably, I don't know the exact number, but it would be roughly, you know, 5 to 8% annual, annualised economic growth which so the economy would have roughly doubled in that time and then yet you have um you have a stock market where the prices is, is still below that that 2008 number which is incredible really isn't it yes that's right so if we move forward then you, you mentioned valuations um tell us about the ebitda enterprise value to ebitda multiple in china might, and what, what might just skip to the price to earnings one for china it's the yeah the, the ebitda numbers can be a little bit um uh, more volatile, so I wanted to in China anyway. So I wanted to look at the price to earnings multiple. So um, yeah, over this is I think the thing that jumps out to me is that we've had a, a sustained period of relatively low price to earnings multiples at the moment. Um, China's traded around about a fourteen and a half times multiple. It's um, slightly under its um, its fifteen to sixteen year average. Um, and I think that's part of the reason we haven't seen this, this sort of sustained strong share market returns over the last decade in China that we have seen in New Zealand and the United States. In our opinion, as China becomes a more developed nation, um, it becomes a safer place to invest. They, uh, from a regulatory stand, standpoint, um, things become a little bit tighter, which means um, there's more protections over over the money that you're putting into the com- into the country. Um, that price earnings multiple should move higher towards what you expect to see in the United States or New Zealand multiples. So at the moment, you know, we're around about five times below where we see in other developed markets. Um, if you think the you know, the country itself is is generally growing quite fast from a GDP perspective, and and also there's some great companies both um, in more traditional sectors such as banking and industrial type um, sectors, but um, also the companies they have in the property sector, which is starting to improve at the moment, and and particularly in the in the technology sector where we've got kind of the, the Amazon of Asia and, and Alibaba, got other great companies like um, Tencent and JD.com. Um, we would hope, you know, we would expect to see. A PE multiple expansion at some point, um, and so maybe we're getting to a, a level uh, situation now where where people sort of maybe looking to move money away from other developed markets. I think China can be a strong beneficiary of this. Fantastic. So um, we've also got a whole bunch of charts in here around Europe. Is there um, anything particular that you want to um, highlight about Europe that, that that stands out to you when you think it through? Yeah. So. Um, Europe has been a disappointing stock market over the last um, really two decades. Um, it has been a market that trades at a much cheaper multiple to New Zealand and to the United States. Um, I guess if you step back and go, why why is that? Why is why is Europe sort of been this this underperforming market? Um, well, one is the um, it has seen a number of sort of additional challenges 
over the last sort of 10 to 15 years than New Zealand and United States has seen. Um, for example, there was a banking crisis um, not, lo- not long after the financial crisis where situations like the Greek, Greek debt problem, we've had countries like Spain and Italy, which has seen a number of debt problems. So in general, we've had lower growth in, um, in Europe. Um, I think just from a general corporate perspective, the companies in, in Europe just have not been performing as strongly as, as you're seeing in New Zealand and the United States. Um, one reason of that is um, possibly that the, the um, that Europe's been sort of underrepresented in technology companies. So a lot of the growth in in United States has been the fantastic expansion of technology businesses, which tend to grow at much higher um, rates than what you see in sort of more traditional industrial or um, utility type businesses. So it's sort of been an underperformer on on that part. Um, and yeah, and it just hasn't really had this sort of multiple expansion that you've seen, um, seen relative, you know, that we've seen in New Zealand and the United States. So, what does that mean today? Well, um, on the one hand, I think we still see some risks in, in Europe. We've, we've got inflation running quite high there at the moment. Uh, we've had um, interest rates starting to increase quite fast, and this is a, a region which hasn't had high interest rates for some time. So, could we start to see some sort of stresses appear in, in the? Um, and say the banking sector there, uh, we're not sure. On the other side, on the other hand, um, we now have a much um, a much better position in terms of energy costs. We had the whole sort of gas explosion in gas prices in Europe and energy prices, which was a big concern. And so for this year, at least, we're seeing great performance in Europe, and it's a very cheap market. So um, I'd say we sort of have balanced views on on Europe at the moment. We do think there will be a period. Um, at some stage where it really outperforms relative to the United States, um, but we're just um, you know, a little bit cautious at the moment, um, given we want to kind of see how this economic situation continues to develop. Righto. And so, I mean, demographics is a key factor in there. Is that is that right? Or what are, what are the main um, other drivers that were pushing Europe to, um, you know, not perform over the decade last period? And has it, has it yeah, are they kind of, are they lifting at all? That's a good point. I mean, they have have had a more aging population than we've seen in the United States. Um, in general, the unemployment rates have been a little bit higher. Um, and if you consider that you've got aging population who are excluded from that, and then you've also got higher unemployment in the rest of them, the country, that just sort of means your your economic growth tends to be tends to be lower. Um, I think you know, it's everyone always tends to compare against the United States, where the United States corporate sector has just been incredibly successful, um, not just over the last 10 to 15 years, but over the last um, really 60 or 70 years. And so um, not every developed market um, can grow at the level that the United States has over the last 70 years. So maybe we've been a little bit unfair sometimes trying to compare them to the United States. Um, yeah, I, I think some of that maybe improves a little bit for Europe, but I don't think it's a problem that can be solved quickly. Um, you know, if you've got an aging population, that's that's just what you have. You can't change. And we know, you know, for example, a place like Japan um, had fantastic returns during a, a economic expansion and bubble expansion period in the 70s and 80s. But since then, they've, they've really struggled with aging population. They had sort of disinflation appear in the market. And so uh, Europe certainly hasn't been as troubled as that, but maybe there's somewhere in between sort of your Japan on the sort of the worst side and the United States on the best side. So to round it out, I guess the, the the broader question of are we there yet? You, you mentioned we're roughly at fair value for a number of markets, and um, and uh, uh, prices have obviously come back, but there's real opportunity there. How would how would you draw your conclusions? Yeah, I, I don't think we can use a blanket rule in every market. This, I guess, is part of the reason we're trying to highlight the different markets here. So, are we there yet in China? Um, 
I would say with a reasonable amount of confidence that I think we are. Um, I think the situation in China is starting to look much better. They're coming out of lockdowns. Their property sector is starting to recover. Uh, we know that economy generally benefits when um, commodity prices move higher and commodity outlook is looking really good at the moment. Um, they still have a you know, a little bit to work through. The, the economic growth outlook for 2023 was coming out a little bit low, a little bit softer than some expected. So it's not um, it's not all smooth sailing, but you can buy that market at below average multiple levels on a market that is not really, which has been an underperformer relative to global markets for the last decade. And and we expect you know from a economic outlook overall was looking pretty favourable compared to um, the northern hemisphere and and even New Zealand. So I, I would say we are there in China. And I think it's a great opportunity. Um, are we there in in United States and New Zealand? Well, depends where you're looking, uh, how you sort of look at that. Um, yes, I think we're we're kind of there in terms of we've removed the excess valuations. Um, does that mean that we're guaranteed to make money over the next 12 months in that market? No. Does it mean that we are likely to avoid the worst case outcomes? I think yes. You know, we're back at the long term average levels, and the worst market sell-offs tend to happen from from extremely high valuation levels. Um, we just need to work through, um, you know, how we're going to get in, on, on top of this inflation situation, how interest, how high interest rates need to go. But can I invest in these markets with confidence on a ten to fifteen year horizon that I'm going to make annualised returns? Absolutely, because we're starting at a great starting point where earnings levels have come back to around about their trendline growth, and valuations have come back to around about the average historical levels. Right, and so back to Jeremy Siegel's point, we can. Looking forward, that 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 seven percent real return compounding through time and doubling your money every ten years is is entirely valid and and um, and reasonable prospect from this point forward. Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm not smart enough or um or, or willing to go out and say that two hundred years of stock market return <laughs> data analysis is wrong and that this is going to be the first year of period of fifteen year negative returns. And I, I just think that's absolutely not the case. And I think. Um, you know, trying to, um, you know, you're, you've got so much on your side when you invest in the share market. You're investing in growing companies. You're investing in the best companies in the world. You're investing in assets which are incredibly resilient and adaptable. They change their cost structures. They change their operations to continue to try to make money. So, um, you know, I, I'm just so comfortable that if you're taking a longer-term view that you're going to make money um, investing in the share market. All right, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's a great point to end on, and thank you for preparing these charts for everyone who's listening. I do encourage you to go and have a look through. They're enlightening, and, and, and they cover a wide range of periods, different uh, viewpoints from which you can look at different share markets, and then they also do uh, compare different markets to each other and against the MSCI, which is the Global Index. So you can understand the broader context of where we are today and whether, in fact, we are there yet. Or, or, or not. But um, now we've heard Andrew's view. Thank you. It's Stefan. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, everyone. This has been the Monday Call, brought to you by NZ Funds. New Zealand Funds Management Limited is the issuer of the NZ Funds KiwiSaver Scheme, the NZ Funds Managed Superannuation Service the NZ Funds Advice Portfolio Service, the NZ Funds Wealth Builder, and NZ Funds Income Generator. A product disclosure statement for each is available at nzfunds.co.nz. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future returns.